A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Stronger Minds podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist, bring you insights into the mind along with the latest information and research on how to build healthy brains. This episode is a long-awaited Q&A with specialist performance and eating disorder dietitian Rini McGregor. Rini is the UK's leading expert in relative energy deficiency in sport and is on the European Task Force for Orthorexia. She has managed the nutrition for athletes at the London 2012 and Rio 2016 Olympics and the 2018 Commonwealth Games, and she is currently working with the Scottish Ballet. In this episode, she answers a wide range of questions submitted by you. Everything from how important body fat percentage is for athletic performance to maintaining hormonal health during training for sport. She is incredibly busy, so I am hugely grateful to her for making the time, and we both hope you find this episode helpful. All right, we are back after a very, very long and anxious wait. I'm in Rini McGregor's kitchen, and we're going to get through this Q&A podcast that I know you have all been promised for a very, very long time, and I'm so sorry you've had to wait this long, but it's been a real issue of kind of synchronising watches and getting our timetables to overlap. Um, we've finally done it. I'm down here in the West Country. Hello, Rini. Hello, Kimberly. <laughs> it's really nice having you here in my kitchen, drinking tea, eating and cheese. <laughs> tasting, taste-testing protein bars. Taste-testing protein bars. It's been lots of fun. We've had a lot of fun with these. We've <laughs> actually spent something like two hours just <laughs> gossiping. Yeah, you don't want to know what we've been gossiping about, but it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> but now we're going to get on to the professional stuff. Yes. So professional hats on. Thank you to everyone. You may not even have remembered sending in your questions now, but thank you to everybody who sent in your questions for Rini. And I've broken them down into roughly different um, titles or subheadings. We're going to start with training, go through eating disorders, periods, um, comfort eating and some miscellaneous questions. And we'll just try and go through them as clearly, but also as in-depth as possible. And um yeah, maybe we'll just kind of kick off. Yes. So the first question, how important is body fat percentage for improving running or cycling performance? So it's a really interesting question, I guess. Um, and I guess to a certain degree, it, it comes back to what's the purpose of your training? You know, like if performance is your outcome, mm-hmm. um, then you need to think about all the processes that 
lead to good performance and you know body weight body composition is just one of many so when you ask how important it is it may contribute but it's not the be all and end all like if you if you're a runner for example um and you're new to running we know that just getting into good consistent training habits is going to significantly improve your performance Mm -hmm. without doing anything else then if you start looking at right my nutrition how do I feel correctly for these training sessions how do I recover properly from these training sessions and how much rest do I give myself and um, what's my running technique like like Mm -hmm. you know what's my stride length and is there is there room for do I run like I'm being chased yeah exactly (laughs) it's uh, my pacing and so I think it's so many people fixate on numbers around weight, body composition as mm-hmm. being the be all and end all for performance, but it really only contributes a very, very small amount to your overall performance. Mm-hmm. And it's also a very fine line, right? Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about racing weight, body composition, the ideal composition for running, but it's a really fine line because there's the kind of that optimal place where your body works fantastically like everything fires and you're ready to go and you're strong you're not somebody who is underweight and very low in body weight because actually if you're in very low in body weight you're a higher risk of injury you're a higher risk of infection you don't have that you probably won't have that power to weight like uh, ratio to, to, to really to get to create force when you're running or cycling so I, it's not something I fixate on. So okay. when people come to me, and often they'll come to me saying, I feel like I need to be, you know, this number. this number. And I'll say, it's really interesting. Where's that number come from? Like, where have you, where's that come from? Because the other thing is, genetically, we're all different. So when you read a, a statistic about, say, I don't know, Chris Froome or Paula Radcliffe, or mm. whoever you're aspiring mm-hmm. to be like, you've got to remember that we're genetically very different. And these very, very top elite athletes they're outliers so they're they're kind of not the people we can aspire to be no they are not the gem pop they're not the average person and actually there'll be a series of different factors that make them stand out and partly that's going to be genetics where they were born what their opportunities were what their in the interuterine nutrition was in all of these things that are completely outside of a lot of people's control so i would say that I, it's like I said, it's not something I focus on. I would look at all the other things we could do. And what generally I find is if you fuel correctly for the training you do, so in terms of you tailor your nutrition to the intensity of your training, the volume of training, you put enough recovery in there, you put enough rest in there, actually body composition sorts itself out. You get the body composition that your body needs to be to perform well. So body composition as an outcome rather than a target. Yes. Gorgeous. Next question, how to keep metabolically or hormonally healthy whilst training substantially? And this person hasn't given details of what substantially means. So maybe we'll just speak a little bit around that. Um, Or or more generally, what the risks are if you're training a lot. And I'm going to assume that this is a woman who sent this in. Okay, so I think there's a real, again, I think we live in a world at the moment where there's, we were talking about this earlier, there's Mm. so much misconception around weight and exercise and physical activity and and what's right and what's wrong and you know there's lots of people talking about it and and it's very generalized and actually it's a very complicated subject but we are living in a 
society where we're constantly being told we need to move more and eat less. Now, the problem is that actually, again, it comes back down to there's a very fine line. And if you are moving a lot, even if that's like an hour a day, two hours a day, whatever that might be, and you are not fueling enough for the work that you do. So when I talk about the work that you do, that'll be your training, Mm -hmm. but it'll also be the general work that you do. Like, you know, people forget that walking your dog counts Mm -hmm. as as, as using energy. I've got a lot of junior doctors I work with and Mm -hmm. they're on their feet all the time and they forget that actually their, you know, their pedometer or, you know, Mm -hmm. the amount of footsteps they take a a day is quite high in comparison to say somebody who's sat in an office Mm -hmm. all day long. So, if you don't put enough energy in for the work that you do, the body will always prioritize movement. And so what happens is that's when metabolic, the metabolic rate starts to become affected. That's when metabolically you'll go into kind of energy preservation mode or mm-hmm. energy saving mode. Um, and that's also when then you might start to have issues with your hormonal health. Mm-hmm. So with women, it's really easy to kind of identify because obviously menstruation tends to become either lighter, erratic, and then usually eventually stops. And we say that to be healthy, you need a minimum of nine periods a year. Okay, so anything less than that, we would say is probably amenorrhea of some description, and you should get that checked out. For men, it's more difficult Mm -hmm. because also they don't have that monthly sign that we do. But there is there is there is a lot of um, evidence that suggests that the morning erectile function is mm-hmm. affected. So we know that obviously if testosterone starts to drop, then they probably won't have that um, on a daily basis, or mm-hmm. they might not have it at all. Um, and libido will drop as well. So there are signs that you can pick up on. So it's really hard to give you an answer on you know exact amount because everybody is so different. But I think the key thing is to look out for signs. Mm-hmm. So if you find that you know, you are noticing that hormonal, there are hormonal changes that are physically noticeable. If you're finding you're not recovering properly between training sessions, if you find that you're actually getting anxious about skipping training, like, you know, I know for myself, I train quite hard, but if I'm tired, I give myself the morning off. It's like, well, mm. there's no point because I'm tired. But if you're somebody who feels you can't, it may suggest that you're doing a little bit too much. Mm. You know, that anxiety is kicked back in. And fueling everybody underestimates how much fuel they actually need you need a lot of food to train and what people don't realize is if you don't have enough fuel in the system you don't have normal hormonal regulation you then don't produce growth hormone Mm. and you need growth hormone to adapt from the training you do so you know i think there's a lot of people sitting out there who who, who do miss periods, who who aren't eating sufficiently, but they feel like, well, I'm still performing, so it's okay. Mm. But you've got to remember that it's not sustainable. And at some point, that's not going to work for you. And so, you know, you have to be really, really mindful. If you want good performance long term, you need to think about being optimal, not functional. And I think we start to overlap it here. So these were kind of training questions. The next ones coming up are more eating disorder, but there's a real overlap here, Mm. isn't there? And the next few questions, I think, really tap into this. So there's one person who says, do I have to work out intensely all the time? How to let myself take a rest day? And I think both of us would find that quite concerning, quite a Mm. red red Mm. flag. The idea that, A, you have to exercise all the time and not take rest days. And partly, I think there is... Certainly in the West, a strong drive for production 
over everything. You yeah. know, if you're not producing, then what is your value? You have to keep doing something. And if you sit down for a moment, then you're being lazy. You're not being productive. You're not achieving. Maybe you're not even ambitious enough. And so that you always feel this. I think it is a partly a social pressure. Some people internalize it and it becomes an internal pressure. Their kind of internal judge is always wagging their finger at them. But I think the additional thing that taps into this is social media, where there does seem to be, you know, where everyone's documenting their productivity um, and, and creating almost a checklist of all the things that they've done. So sometimes you can watch someone's entire day and you can see that they were up at the crack of dawn and they went to the gym, then they went to their full-time job and then they caught up with friends and then they were having, you know, and it's this huge amount of activity when A, are they like that all the time? But B, should any of us be like that all the time? And C, a big one, sorry, I've completely overtaken no, this. No, go for it. You're, you're, you're doing great. C, something that I, I talk to my clients about is the value of rest and pleasure in and of themselves, that you are not a unit of production and that health is a balance between hormetic or good stress and adequate recovery. If you don't get those in balance, then you are on your way to to poor health. Absolutely. And I was going to say, I'm going to quote you, (laughs) because I love you, as you know. But you wrote, I think you wrote a post, or maybe in a conversation, but I remember Mm. you saying to me that rest, when you rest, that's when you're creative. Mm. And I took that because I know that I've had moments where... I found it difficult to rest, not physically, not through physical activity, but mm. in terms of my work. Like, you know, there's that, again, that kind of, like you said, that internal drive, mm-hmm. someone wagging their finger, like, you've got to keep going, really. you've got to keep going, you've got to keep pushing, you've got to keep pushing. And I remember kind of thinking, oh, actually, this, this is not healthy anymore because I, I can't make decisions. Mm-hmm. I can't actually think straight. And I've, I've definitely... I've definitely taken on board what you said and it made so much sense to me and that I started taking regular breaks and any of you that follow me you will know that I start to take regular breaks away from my work and into the mountains yeah off into the mountains usually <laughs> but it but it's it it is that ability to you know to be away from my inbox to be away from my normal environment mm-hmm. and often it's actually often when I'm sitting on the plane or on the train mm. where I'm really not, I don't I try not to work actually because I think for me, it's the time when I tend to like, maybe I listen to a podcast or listen to music most of the time, because that's when I find that my best ideas come to play. So, you know, in terms of answering the question around, should you be working out intensely all the time? Absolutely not. And in fact, when I work with the clients that I work with who have red S, so relative energy deficiency in sports, you know, so there's not enough energy going into the system especially females and men, but where the hormones we know are low, one of the key things we say is that intensity actually needs to come right off because we know that high intensity exercise actually blocks that hypothalamic axis. And that's then what creates all the problems in terms of hormonal regulation. So no, and I I mean, I if I even think about my own training, I, I think you know, and I'm not training for anything at the moment, but if I was, when I was doing marathon training and stuff, there'd only be two high intensity sessions a week Mm. out of say five or six the rest of it would be fairly easy steady Mm. stuff or recovery stuff you know it's it's really important to get that balance because I think if you're somebody who feels the need to intensely exercise all the time 
that's saying that you don't feel able to or stop deserving. cracking. Yeah, not able to crack that whip. Mm. You're not able to stop cracking that whip. And to me, that's a big red flag. Yeah. I, I, I would suggest, so the second part of that question was, how do I let myself take a rest day? I think there's an important question about why perhaps you don't feel you deserve rest. 100%. And whether you would be saying that, for example, to a friend of yours, would you turn to someone and say, you don't deserve to take a rest day you need to be working all the time. Presumably, you wouldn't. You'd understand that that would be quite a harsh thing to say to someone. So the question would be then, why are you saying it to yourself? Why don't you deserve rest? Why don't you deserve to recover? And why has potentially, you know, and I don't know anything about this person's story, but potentially your exercise becomes more punishing than, mm. than it does invigorating or enlivening? And that's, that's a real question. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think also, so the other thing I would ask, say, is um, a lot of people, and I'm sure you have the same, Kimberly. Mm. A lot of people will say, "But if I stop, I feel lazy." Mm. And I always say, "Well, I'm sat here not training at the moment. Does that make me a lazy person?" And they're like, "Well, no." I was like, "So why does it make you a lazy person?" Mm. Like, you know, I think we can tell from the fact. That you want to train or you think you know you are trained that you are probably inherently not a lazy person mm. and what does that even what mean what does lazy and that was my question you know, like, what, what does, does lazy mean? mean i think there's a real ambiguity around these sorts of terms mm. and obviously lazy is, is used as a in the pejorative it's a negative term people who aren't ambitious they don't try hard enough you're not going to succeed unless you work 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 but it's a, that's unsustainable. B, it's rather punishing. And C, frankly, it's no way to live. No, what are you going to do? Punish yourself the rest of your life? It's 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 no way to treat yourself. Exactly. And if you're content being somebody that's not maybe as driven or ambitious, and that's that's there's nothing wrong mm. with that. If you're content in what you do and it makes you happy and you're enjoying your life, then then why is that? Why does that have to have such a negative connotation to it? I don't. Mm. I don't think it needs to. Um, and I think often when you are somebody who is incredibly driven, you find it very difficult to understand when other people are not like you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more about your experience of how you experience life and mm-hmm. not being able to appreciate somebody else. So I think, you know, you need to be mindful of that. Definitely. Okay. So still on the general topic of eating disorders and disordered eating, this question is, I developed bulimia and become fixated on eating only healthy foods. How can I overcome this as I used to be such a good eater and didn't have any issues? Now it's like I can't stop the binge and purge cycle um, unless I've eaten something, if I've eaten something that's not clean. And this is a very big issue and I guess it's one that you come across quite a lot, having been the author of orthorexia, being on the European task force for orthorexia, this sits right in your wheelhouse. But I mean, that we could take a little bit of time breaking this question down, can't we? Mm. And first of all, the idea of clean foods. I, I kind of can see the steam coming out <laughs> of your ears already. And, and I know you've spoken about this a lot. It kind of feels like a, a, a zombie term that just won't die. It, it's so weird, isn't it? Because it basically is a belief system, right? Mm. It, it stems from this belief that if you eat in this way, somehow you are better. 
that yeah you're you're better than everybody else or you're you're you know you're a better person or you're a purer person or however we want to you know obviously we know breakdown of orthorexia is you know it's the, the definition is the obsession with eating correctly mm-hmm. and I have a real issue with well what's correct mm-hmm. you know who's making the rules who determines it where is the nuance what's so much of this and often when working with clients it's really about helping people to question a who sets these rules B, when did you sign up to follow them? When did it become your job to follow these rules? And C, who decides on what the penalties are? You know, it's as if we've, everyone is, not everyone, but you know, that people have decided to go along with this idea without questioning who's in charge, who has the autonomy, who has the agency, whose body is it? And who should be doling out the punishments yeah. or, or the credits and the or the applause if you're doing it right or wrong? There's a real issue here, I think, around autonomy and a kind of self-directed way of living. Agreed. And I think I think again something again we've talked about a lot is is how when people then get stuck in this headspace of good and bad their belief system is so strong about what they should eat because that's what they've been told to eat mm. wherever it's come from is that it's it feels so incredibly real for them mm. but it's their truth it's not the truth of the world but then where we get stuck is obviously again we go back to social media mm. because we know that belief systems they're generated from information and experience and obviously if you're looking at certain posts and certain accounts and that's who you're following because we know there's that confirmation bias Mm -hmm. you know and you've and you've got this echo chamber of people saying you must eat like this because only then are you superior and only then are you going to have pure health and only then are you going to live to a long age and only then are you going to have this wonderful lifestyle that i have got Mm -hmm. you completely believe that and and nobody's challenging it Mm. and that's one of the things i find so frustrating about social media is this 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 lack of challenge mm. because we end up choosing the people that we, we kind of already believe in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you, you're validating that belief system further. So it's really, so it's, it's a really interesting cause I, I, well, the first thing I would ever do with every client is just kind of get them to list actually their beliefs around food and yeah. training. And then we'd go through one at a time and find out where it came from. Just in the way you mm-hmm. just questioned like, where does this come from? Where did that like, where's the proof in this Mm -hmm. and for me it's all about trying to like get that evidence and if they find me I don't know an article or something we'll then kind of go okay well well, where's the credibility in this article who's the expert in this field so you really start to nail down what is factual and what is their own truth and in that way because the only way you can challenge your behaviors the only way you can change your behaviors is to challenge your behaviors Mm -hmm. and obviously with this individual she's very much stuck in this good food bad food Mm -hmm. now the problem is because she feels she needs to be good she's over restricting Mm -hmm. through the day because this is a classic setup for binge purge situation is they over restrict during the day because Mm -hmm. it helps them to feel safe and clean and tidy and neat but also the body Mm -hmm. is always trying to achieve energy balance so they get to the end of the day it usually is the end of the day Mm -hmm. they're still hungry the body's demanding food why wouldn't it it would they make a decision and unfortunately, you know, for them, it's like, oh, my God, I've messed up. I've eaten a bad food. I've messed up. And then it's like, well, I've done that now, so I might as well carry on. That's Bailey just adding to the mix, obviously, because, um, you know, we can't have a podcast without Bailey. Um, 
But I think the other thing is that obviously we both know that binging is not, it's, there's a physiological reason, but there's also mm-hmm. an emotional reason. Mm-hmm. And you're probably better sort of positioned to kind of talk about the emotional aspect of that. Certainly from my position, what we're talking about is what, with any of the eating mm. disorders or disordered approaches to food, is what is trying to be achieved psychologically through the eating behaviour, what is being expressed emotionally through the eating behaviour. And that will be different for everybody. But I think one of the big issues that comes up a lot for me with my clients is the idea of conformity versus rebellion. Mm. Um, And a lot of people that come into me are often, I think, stuck in a sense of conformity and obedience, being good, doing the right thing, not causing a fuss, not being a nuisance, being wanting to be thought well of. Um, of being a good person and that belief system that idea gets overlaid onto food is expressed in other ways so often these are people who don't complain in restaurants or who don't you know have arguments with their parents when their parents have been unreasonable or feel very guilty if they you know haven't been able to help out a friend in the very specific but perhaps unreasonable way that that friend wants to be helped out in um, they feel like they always have to be the one going the extra mile trying harder doing their best making the effort yet all the time they're being depleted themselves and so what I often work on <laughs> and this might just be a reflection of myself is um it's really encouraging a bit more psychological rebellion mm. you know and that's that's all about challenging the rules challenging the authorities questioning the legitimacy of the authorities that you agree with or that, that you're conforming to and that's it's quite a, an in-depth process because often people who are conforming or who are have a tendency to obedience have been doing it for years and years and years and that again it feels very safe and it's what they're it's how they protect themselves and the idea that there might be some value in rebellion or in disagreeing or in causing a fuss or in saying no can sometimes take a little bit to uh for them to be convinced of but i guess i come back to the question i guess what we're both saying is that this is an issue of of questioning the rules questioning the authority questioning the validity of the idea of clean versus dirty foods and also questioning why it is so important that you conform to those sorts of ideas. Yeah, and I think, you know, in terms of how you move forward, I mean, I think Kimberly and I both work on a principle of challenge. Mm -hmm. You have to challenge these beliefs, you have to challenge the rules, you have to challenge the Mm behaviour, and it is uncomfortable, and it's about being okay with that discomfort, Mm -hmm. knowing that it will pass. Um, And once you've done it once, you do it again, then that becomes your new learnt behaviour. You Mm -hmm. realise there isn't this negative association that you believed was going to happen Mm -hmm. so you you provide yourself with enough evidence that actually it's not that bad to eat a bar of chocolate or it's not that bad to have a biscuit if that's Mm -hmm. what I fancy and it's not easy we're Mm -hmm. not neither of us saying this is Mm -hmm. easy at all but I think unfortunately it's the only way you actually you know you recover from an eating disorder is this this sense of challenge you have to prove the fear is wrong yes 100% Okay. The next question is a really tough one. Um, help with the NHS don't class you as sick enough to justify help and you can't afford private treatment. And I mean, this is excruciating as a question because I, you know, I absolutely know that it's not an exaggeration. I've had people who have come to me who've said that often their GP has looked at their BMI and said, you'll have to come back when you're thinner. And it's 
awful. It's really awful because we know that the longer someone is sick, the more entrenched the disorder and the harder or slower it is to recover. And it's always better with anything, with any psychological disorder. And let's remember that eating disorders are psychological, psychiatric disorders and not just problems with food. It's always better if you can intervene early. Oh, 100%. And, you know, this just to widen the scope, obviously, we're talking about eating disorders here. But, you know, a lot of my work is with athletes who come under the title of Red S, but again, there's, there's two types of Red S, and, and the majority of Red S I see is the is the you know the conscious decision to restrict, the conscious mm-hmm. decision to overtrain. So these are fairly healthy looking individuals, mm-hmm. to be honest, um, who go into their GPs and say things like, you know, my period has stopped, or um, I've been, I'm getting constantly injured, mm-hmm. or whatever their symptom might be, and it's dismissed because well yeah that's normal because you're a runner or it's Mm. normal because and it's not normal and and this is not this is not an attack at gps at all it's just very very frustrating and i feel your pain because Mm. i I think if kimberly and i could help every single person out there that couldn't get help in the nhs we would but it's so incredibly difficult and i guess that's why both of us try and use our social media platform as an education like you know, we're not, we've just been talking about this, you know, our, our social media is very much educational, is mm. to help those people that can't access us, maybe because of finances. Mm. Um, and, you know, like a lot of you do get in touch regularly and say, thank you, your post has really helped me and it's really making me want to challenge and it's making me want to change. And and I, I feel so grateful for those those messages because it means that, you know, the education we're putting out can help and can make a difference but yeah we don't unfortunately we don't have an answer for that question no i think other than reaching out to third sector and voluntary organizations mm-hmm. charities like beat um who may be able to put you in touch with a low cost um therapy service or often for example places like the tavistock mm-hmm. who have very kind of final year fourth year fifth year sometimes six year um analytic trainees where they can do a low cost therapy intervention but it's it's really really tough and all I could say is to keep going back to your GP not allow yourself to be kind of pushed aside or told that you need to you know become more unwell and just try to keep pushing for that treatment because they can't keep ignoring you but yeah it's really tough but I guess we wanted to kind of put that question out there because we know it's a reality for a lot of people you know a lot of people are struggling with this a lot of people who perhaps do read our content and realize Mm. that they do have an issue with food um are then thinking well maybe I need to get some help with it and I would say just try to keep pushing and hopefully you'll get a favorable outcome Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Okay. The next one I think is quite pertinent as well. And in fact, the next two are quite important issues. Um, one person asking, well, how do I change the idea that being thin is part of my identity? It's, it's, uh, we were talking again, we've, we've been, we've been chewing the fat mm. before we came on here, but, um, so I have a little bee in my bonnet, as some of you will know about, um, you know, I put a post out a few months, maybe a month or two ago about the different pathways that lead into development of dysfunctional relationships with food. Mm-hmm. And while there was a, um, there is a pathway in terms of social and environmental, which I guess encompasses, and I know you hate this term, but encompasses the whole diet culture, thin ideal, whatever we want to call it. It's a very, it actually contributes very, very little to dysfunctional eating. Mm -hmm. So when somebody comes in and says that it's really important for my identity to be thin, I guess it questions, again, it's that question of, well, well, why? What does it mean? Yeah. And, and then you, once you start exploring that, often it comes back down to acceptance. You know, there's a belief system there that being thin means they're going to be accepted, they're mm-hmm. going to be more popular, they're going to look better in clothes or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. particularly with younger kids, I mm-hmm. find. Um, but I think we were also talking earlier about how, you know, when you are somebody that has self-worth mm-hmm. and you are content in yourself, um, and you have the ability to nurture yourself, your physical being is not really of any relevance mm-hmm. because you are so confident in your in your environment and in your space about being you mm-hmm. that you don't really think about your physical appearance as the acceptance bit. Mm-hmm. You know, like I would say both you and I are individuals that are very respected for the work we do. I never give a second thought to how I look. I'm always conscious that the reason why people listen to me is because of Mm -hmm. the work I do and and how that impacts them Mm -hmm. but uh, but of course when you're somebody who is very low in self-esteem and there's this belief and you know you said you've got this identity it's that fear of what if I let go of this identity what if Mm -hmm. what if I'm not accepted like what if what if I'm not good enough you know Mm. I think there's an element of that going on there And I think there's a a question of what is being thin achieving for you psychologically that you don't feel you have access to otherwise? What is it giving you entrance into? Mm. And I think acceptance is often the big one. 
often a sense of self-efficacy mm. is the other you know oh I can't I am achieving things because I am achieving the job of being thin which you know it can be a full-time job mm. often um and it feels like productivity and it feels like achievement and it feels like success mm. and so again we're I would be thinking about challenging the ideas of this is the means of success this is the means of achievement um this is the means of self-esteem and I guess I I work from a position that we're all born with kind of I would say feeling good about ourselves it's usually that our self-esteem is taken away from us um rather than that you know, self-esteem has to be something that's built up. I think self-esteem is something that is taken away and needs to be restored. And so I would be curious as to why is it perhaps that so much of your identity, so much of who you are is wrapped up in being thin or fitting a a particular kind of social norm? Mm -hmm. What is that about? And that's massively complex. There could be class issues in there there could be race issues in there there could be just uh, familial issues in there for example often eating disorders are passed down they're kind of matrilineal they're passed down from mother to daughter to granddaughter um so there can be a long history of working out why thinness is so important but often it's that work that needs to be unpacked would you also say and this is just a question to you around this subject Mm. i think sometimes people talk to me about clean lines like that need to be edgy mm. like it's almost like or you know like this is it's an, it's an experience within their body as well like a feeling of what well, I need to be contained and mm. and and angular almost and you know like almost kind of we we were talking about earlier isolation that kind of un, like not, not touchable I mean you know we're now questioning things as well but I just mm. it's a very I think it's a really interesting question I think because when you say that it makes me think of I've just been watching the gymnastics ah, yeah. um, and how they're always described as having clean lines mm. she's such an elegant gymnast mm. she has these clean lines but psychologically or psychoanalytically we think about the body as the container mm. so ideally your mind is your container and and when you're a child your parents mind is your container and container in terms of holding on to your anxieties, helping to translate the world for you. And we talk about it actually in food terms, which is why I'm kind of food and and psych, because we talk about for the baby and for a young child, the world being full of undigestible things. Everything's too much. Everything's overwhelming. Everything's new and bright and, you know, it's overwhelming for the individual. And what the parent does is to take that information, digest it like a mother bird, and then feed it back to the child in a digestible you know, partly digested, understood way. Um, But if you don't have that, for whatever reason, whether there's something about the child that can't take that in or something about the parent or the environment that prevents that process from happening, then the body becomes the container. Mm. And people hold on to things in their bodies. And that's when you see, for example, people who visibly become tense for example when they're stressed but can't get the words out or people whose eating changes when they're worried but that can't express it through words what's going on for them or they can't ask for help and they can't you know and 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 lots of you know neck pains and stomach problems backache all of these things that get expressed through the body when it's really difficult to try to translate it into words I don't know how we got on to that. <laughs> no, no, that was, that was me kind of moving it slightly off track. But I, I think it is a really interesting, you know, because 
there's the feeling thing mm. and there's the being thing mm. and they're almost slightly two different things yeah. and I think um obviously the question was about identity and mm. I think we kind of covered that but I think there's there's a lot more here we could talk about mm. um on that but how do you change it as in you know as in Kimberly said it's it goes back to a lot of questioning mm. of where this has come from and working with a professional I think if you can again you know understanding the real world limitations on that and there are a lot of difficulties but this stuff runs really deep eating issues if we think about food as a fundamental life preserving activity you know it is about survival from my position what I say is is when something goes wrong with food something has gone fundamentally wrong Mm -hmm. and so and that's not work you can do by yourself or that you should do by yourself that is work that takes well a team actually because this work involves having you know to think about the biology and the physiology as well as the psychology and that's an overlapping thing so I think it's really important that you're asking this question and you're thinking about it because awareness is the first step to change of course but then the next part is asking for help and translating that advocating for yourself and saying you know what I deserve help I deserve to be supported and I deserve to feel better Mm, yeah definitely Okay. The next one is a question I actually get quite a lot. So um, how to maintain healthy eating around someone with an eating disorder? And and I think it's a really important question because so much food is runs in this very interesting overlapping place where it's partly, well, in, ter- in some ways it's very private, very personal, but it's also very social mm. and we eat together and um we you know we know what other people are eating and we and especially in shared houses I think shared houses can be an absolute nightmare if there are you know sometimes I hear about stories where three or four students in a house of five have a disordered relationship with food and that one person is trying for dear life to hold on to a healthy relationship with food so yes how yeah I I agree with you um and sorry if you can hear snoring in the background it is Bailey uh, it's just, gorgeous. <laughs> um, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I think the key thing here is is realizing that you're not the one with the problem, and actually your you know your behaviors around food are probably growing normal, mm-hmm. um, and that's what you need to really really hold on to. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a case of you have to. I think sometimes people go over the top and try and overcompensate. overcompensate. Mm. I, I would say stick to what feels good for you and eat in the way that you would always eat, regard you know, if you mm. weren't with somebody who didn't have eating disorders. Um I don't I wouldn't change mm. to make that person actually feel better no. or worse in any way, because fundamentally your experience of, of what you're doing, they won't be able to experience anyway. So um I you know, I think I think the key thing is definitely try don't try and overcompensate. I think mm-hmm. too many people try and do that, and they you know they change too much. But if uh, you know something, I often hear from people with eating disorders is that if they are with people that are really comfortable around food, they actually find that really reassuring. So if they're with friends that they they feel comfortable with, they're with friends that have a really good relationship with food and their own body image. That's actually quite aspiring mm. to somebody who's got an eating disorder because that's kind of, especially if they've they've got to the point where they want to change, mm. and it can be quite reassuring being with people. And um, I know from my own personal experience that when I was trying to get understand what normal eating was after my eating disorder, it was it actually spending time with a couple of really close friends who were 
just mm. really relaxed about food and it really helped me mm, that's what I was going to say if you if this person or anybody listening who's in a similar position if you have people around you whom you know do have a good relationship with food I would say try to spend more mm. time with them you know and, and try to go out you know for meals with them and eat with them and just to try to be in a place where it's normal to eat a range of foods and it's normal to have a balance of foods and it's normal to not talk about food Food, all the time unless you're kind of eating it right so you can that food just becomes an incidental thing oh I'm hungry should we go and eat something yes oh what do we fancy let's grab that fantastic okay we've eaten now we can get on with the rest of our lives and it's not a discussion about you know prevaricating about what we should or shouldn't eat or what we've eaten before or what we're going to eat later or what we've already had that week where it just if you have those people around you and to be honest I think those people are few and far between but Mm -hmm. if you do then then do try to spend a little bit more time with them but I think exactly as Rini says just remember just try to hold on to to where you are and I think I think that is difficult because often what's the majority around us becomes normalized so if everybody for example in your house has decided to cut carbs then it becomes normal to cut carbs um but yeah just to try to hold on to that balance and to do that you need to be cut you need to be around a more balanced form of normal yeah and I'd also say like just because just following on from what Kimberly said you know like when you are in that environment where you're just sitting around having a conversation and you're not really thinking about the food you're eating it can Mm. be a really good way of changing the association with food because suddenly you remember that experience as oh I had a really nice time talking to my friends and I feel really positive leaving that environment and I think that can also be you know creating that environment for somebody that's got an eating disorder Mm -hmm. can actually be a really positive thing for them as well so um so yeah, don't always feel like you have to be mindful of what you're doing. Just mm-hmm. be true to yourself. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I mentioned carbs, so I'm just going to pop into mm. these questions about carbs. Um, what are the links between carbs, sleep, and hormones? Okay, well, I'll take the carbs and hormones. So carbohydrate is really, really important for correct functioning of the hypothalamic axis right and that's again something that people don't appreciate at all and especially when you're doing exercise it's important for everybody Mm -hmm. but particularly when you're doing exercise so in in the clinic that I run with Dr Key the um an endocrinologist what we see majority of the time are individuals who have um low estrogen or low testosterone due to under fueling and overtraining. but we also get a number of people that you know, when you look on the surface of what they're eating and their training they're doing, that they've, they've kind of, they've realised that something's not right and they've tried to change things, it does look like they're eating sufficiently. Mm-hmm. Like the overall energy intake is actually good. Mm-hmm. But the fine tuning of carbohydrate, particularly regularly throughout the day and the distribution of energy throughout the day is really important. So I have a number of clients where, They've still got hypothalamic amenorrhea, for example, um, but they're um, they're eating the majority of their calories towards the end of the day. So they're still kind okay. of in that slightly, you know, it's not restrictive behaviour as such, but it's kind of just that behave that kind of normalisation of well, I eat less during the day and I, I kind of mm. make it up in the evening mm. type thing. And now the problem with that is it doesn't work for the hypothalamic um, axis. So hormonally, it's really important to have good energy distribution throughout the day. 
and it's also really important to have carbohydrate we call it carbohydrate availability around training so this is why often we say to people who are in eating disorders or recovering from red s or who have um, hormonal um, dysfunction is you should never do fasted training so you should never do the training first thing in the morning on an empty stomach you should always try and consume mm-hmm. some form of carbohydrate before you train um, because we know that cortisol levels will be high you then go out and train you raise those even higher it blocks the pituitary gland and hence you don't have normal hormonal control so carbs while that have been given quite a bad press are so important for us like they're the currency the body uses, um, but also just they've got so many other added benefits mm. that people don't appreciate. Mm. And I think in terms of sleep, I think that, you know, there's a, well, I, I guess one of the big things is that carbs isn't just, you know, sugar, you know, free sugar in a biscuit or a muffin. Carbs also covers all of those other polysaccharides, which includes fibre, which we know is absolutely crucial to good gut health mm-hmm. and which increasingly we will understand, I think, is hugely important for mental health. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of sleep, the I think the evidence is a bit equivocal. Uh, in having carbohydrates or starches in particular in the evening can possibly help support sleep as it can increase tryptophan availability. Um, but then you also need to think about, you know, activities and anxiety and stress and all of that and actually one of the biggest factors the biggest factor that affects sleep is actually psychology Mm. what's going on in your mind whether you're anxious have you actually relaxed before bed all of the stuff around blue light so I think it's often less about what people are eating and more about what they're thinking yeah so often you know the anxiety about what they're eating rather than the actual content of their food will be the thing that's keeping them awake so sometimes if you can't sleep having a, a carby snack can help get you off to sleep but other than that really the thing that's affecting the amount of sleep you're getting is exposure to light in the day which will increase your sleep pressure um the overall quality of your diet which is going to affect lots of different hormones and metabolites in the gut and the amount of kind of activity and, and yeah. things that are going on through your mind and i think also like a lot of people that under eat significantly sleep very badly oh, yes. that's because the body is basically trying to keep you alive trying, trying to keep you awake so you can look for food that's yeah. the thing yeah exactly um so similarly there's a question that says can i eat carbs in the evening and i guess this is coming from maybe some things that you see around which is around you know don't eat carbs after six or front load your carbs have them in the morning but don't eat them in the evening uh is there any reason as far as you're concerned around why that rule would be followed um no so i mean basically I think that, that again, it's, as, as, as you just said, Kimberly, like there's a real misconception about what carbohydrate actually is. And, you know, there's we're not going to go into kind of the whole misconceptions around uh, processed food mm-hmm. and, and white carbs and, and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But if we look at carbohydrate um, per se, if you are choosing whole grains um mm-hmm. you know kind of like legumes, legumes exactly the the, the, the the kind of carbohydrate that we encourage people to eat it's very difficult to overconsume those mm-hmm. carbohydrates and i think this is where this fear of carbs has come in is that it's mm-hmm. very easy to overconsume mm-hmm. certain types of carbs that doesn't mean you should never eat them it just means it can be quite easy to like you know it's very easy to sit there and eat a bag i always use the, the metaphor of you know if you had a bag of jelly babies mm-hmm it's like 150 160 grams of carbs for a big family bag of jelly babies 
that's the equivalent to three medium-sized baked potatoes, which is a lot harder to eat. So it's trying to give people this... <laughs> and I've this, tried. Yeah, exactly, I have tried. It's trying to give people this, mm. this example that carbs are not bad for you. Mm-hmm. They've been given a bad press because, again, we have lots of people out there with very little base, very little nutritional knowledge, putting making it making it very simple and, mm-hmm. and creating a lot of fear and anxiety. So I would never remove carbs, um, and I would never be fearful of having them in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I think, as I just said earlier, distributing your carbohydrate throughout the day is such an important um, impact on hormones, energy levels, mood. Um, your blood sugars and everything but I guess it's about it's about understanding the carbs you should eat maybe more of Mm -hmm. and those that you should again we're not saying you should never eat but you maybe just need to eat in smaller quantities thank you all right so we've got a question about periods can you get symptoms of having a period when you've had amenorrhea for over a year so e.g you know I guess having PMS symptoms Mm being tired at certain times of the month with the absence of an actual, of actual kind of menstruous? Yes, you can. Um, it's it's one of those that if we were to do a blood test and see where your hormones were, so we'd look at kind of your control hormones like um, FSH, the follicle-stimulating hormone, and LH, luteinizing hormone. And we'd also look at estrogen and we'd look at prolactin. So this is what we generally tend to do when we're in clinic. And, you know... Every female that comes to clinic has slightly different um, dysregularity. So some people, the controlling hormones are the ones that are not working. Um, Often that's when there's very intense exercise involved. That often gets flattened completely. So you don't get these lovely ups and downs that you would normally see. Um, And when estrogen is very low, then obviously, again, you're not going to, basically, you're not going to get a period. So what can be happening is that you may be, your your control hormones may be working. Your FSH and your LH may actually be doing their job, hence the ups and the downs that Mm -hmm. you're feeling. But if your estrogen is low, and we talk about, so Nikki and I, Nikki gets really twitchy if any female's um, estrogen is below 100, right? Um, And so... uh, and it's very rare, and I don't think we've seen it in our clinic, but it's very, very rare that a female will menstruate with an estrogen less than 100. So if if, you're, if everything else is right, but your estrogen is not right, mm-hmm. you're still not going to have a period. But okay. you may be finding that you're getting some of the kind of ups and downs. And similarly, what we find in this situation is that this is also when sometimes people are misdiagnosed with PCOS. Because okay. they go back to their they go to their GP and their GP sends them off to a gynecologist and the gynecologist doesn't really take a good background history of restrictive eating or whatever mm-hmm. or whatever you know mm-hmm. what might be going on. They'll look at the blood test and see a low estrogen. They don't always look and see what testosterone is doing. Um, so you need a high testosterone, not a low testosterone, and then they often get sent for an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Now, when you then look at an ultrasound, you see these little cysts. And that's because the body's waiting. Mm-hmm. It wants it wants to these little follicles. It mm-hmm. wants to release an egg. It wants to have a period, and then it's misdiagnosed as PCOS. So then you get into this whole misdiagnosis. I, like mm-hmm. even I mean, we had clinic on Wednesday, and we had four clients in clinic, and three of them had been told they had PCOS, and they didn't. So it's really important to understand that the body can be kind of ripe and ready, but it just needs that switch. 
And that switch will be associated normally with energy availability or body fat or body weight um, or exercise intensity. So it can be any of those things that are stopping it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I feel like I've learned so much just from that question. (laughs) Moving into slightly more kind of miscellaneous questions. This one about comfort eating. I often use food as a reward. How can I start to think uh, to change the way I think about food? Maybe I'll jump in Mm. on this one a little bit. Um, I I'm possibly I I might be the right or the wrong person to ask about this because I have no problem with comfort eating. Um, I think for a number of reasons, comfort eating is a real thing. And those reasons are linked, for example, around our neurology and the way that our emotional systems piggyback off our biological systems. I've done some posts on it. Maybe I will do some more. The issue is as ever and also you know food is pleasurable food mm. you were evolved to find it delicious and pleasurable and that pleasure is associated with increases in in good pleasurable hormones hormones associated with good mood and and mild euphoria sometimes not so mild um the issue of course is if it is the only thing you have to rely on so i think sometimes i once i worked with someone who said that she felt guilty if she ever enjoyed her food Mm. because the idea that because she associated enjoying food as being greedy and that you were just eating because you were greedy so the idea that so the way we bash comfort eating kind of can sometimes get a little bit blurred with the idea then that food shouldn't be pleasurable and therefore that food should only be fuel and therefore that we should only eat in a kind of kind of robotic way yeah and as a response to your stomach telling you you need something Mm. yeah no and yeah I'd agree and I think my point would be first of all there isn't anything wrong per se with comfort eating or eating you know if you've had if you've had some really good news (laughs) you know I was looking around the other day for somewhere I really really I've had a lovely day and I fancied a madeleine (laughs) and it was it was the thing that I wanted and I went I literally you should have seen me (laughs) up and down Tottenham Court Road trying to buy the bakery that did Madeleine's and they didn't in the end and it was the only thing I wanted so I didn't get anything else but that would have been that would have been a reward food like mm, you've had a good day this is really nice thank you very much so there's nothing with it not wrong with it per se if it's the only thing that you have to reward yourself with so if you can't for example then get pleasure from giving yourself the night off and just having a Netflix binge or going for a lovely walk or having a hot bath or you know all the other things that you might be able to use rewards for, then there would be a need to to change it. And again, um, if that's the case, if it's the only way you have of responding to your emotional needs, then I would be thinking, well, when did that happen? When did you learn that you can't turn to other people Mm. for emotional support or for praise, you know, that you can't call a friend or your parents and have them say, well done, you know, congratulations, I'm so proud of you, you've done great, good job. You know, why has food become the only way that you reward yourself? And that's a more of an exploratory thing. And again, I would be saying, maybe think about speak to speaking to a professional about that. Yeah, and I think I'm going to love your concept of, I mean, I think, again, it's the language we use, isn't it? Mm. Like, I always think about comfort food and comfort. It's very similar to you. Like, if I if I'm having you know sometimes we we do need a little pick-me-up right mm. like we we're, we're maybe we're, maybe we're a bit flat on energy or maybe we've just had a run of difficult days and, and we need something and you know for me like 
as you know, mountains, my thing. Um, but obviously, like, often being reminded of, of a time when I've been in the mountains, you know, having having a croissant before I go out. And mm. it's kind of like, you know, like you, I'm like, right, I'm going to go and get a croissant today for my breakfast. Because, you know, that just mm. gives, it, it's that association for me. Mm-hmm. You know, similarly, when I'm, if I'm, if I've had a really bad race, actually, or something like that, I'll be like, I remember feeling, you know, when I was a kid, like, coming home from school and it'd been pouring with rain and it was I was soaked through to the skin I came home and my mum made like beans on toast with cheese mm. and stuff and it and it reminds me of that kind of warmth almost as a comfort blanket yeah it's how I see it so and there are lots of that's my point that there are lots of psychological mm. and neurological reasons why that that's a true and real thing and you're not just being greedy yeah, agreed. And I, I think that's it. Again, it, you know, it, it comes back to that language, doesn't mm. it? The language we use with ourselves, and the more we use certain terms, like we've already talked about lazy, you know, we're talking mm. about greedy, the more we use these words in a, in a negative connotation, mm. the more we start to believe that about ourselves, and, and then that becomes our immediate truth, and, mm. and, and then we respond to that. Yeah. So I think it's, it's about being able to unpick some of these thoughts that are going through your mind. Yeah. All right. So last question. Does a low fat diet make you feel more hungry if you're already a healthy weight? Ooh, this sounds complex. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because I think I think probably what this person has, has read is around this whole should you have full fat dairy, should you have low fat dairy and, and what what's the difference and how does it, you know. And, and and to a certain degree, fat has a big satiety mm. value to it. So when we eat fat... It's also delicious. Absolutely. It's got that good mouthfeel, isn't mm. it? That's why we, we like dairy milk chocolate, because it's got that really good mouthfeel. Sorry, I should use other chocolate companies also are okay. But what I'm saying is this is that fat, it does have a satiety, so we do feel fuller mm-hmm. for longer. Um, but that's not to say you should, you can't eat low fat products if you prefer to um i think if you're a healthy weight and your body is regulated then your body will work for you right and this is something i always talk about is that our bodies are really good at working for us we have this really intricate kind of hormonal homeostatic system that works for us so you know i think in the past i've spoken a lot about kind of the ghrelin leptin response so when we're hungry we release a hormone called ghrelin which makes us feel hungry and then makes us search for food mm-hmm. and when ghrelin is high leptin is low and when leptin is low it's it's telling the body to hold on to body fat because it's like well actually there's no food here at the moment mm-hmm. but if we're in normal in normal normal homeostatic control as soon as we eat and we you know we respond to our hunger leptin comes back up we feel satisfied and we're good to go until the next time and, and you know and that's normal homeostatic control mm-hmm. the difficulty comes when you again it comes back down to if you are consciously restricting so if you're making the choice to eat low fat food because there's a there's a there's a conscious need to reduce your energy intake and you're not meeting your body's energy needs then I say that can become slightly problematic mm-hmm. because you won't be able to, you won't get that lovely homeostatic feedback. Mm-hmm. And so leptin will stay continually low and it will keep pumping out this sign, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, mm-hmm. I'm hungry. And if you don't respond to that, then obviously this is where, where you sort of kind of go can go into preservation mode. So while your weight might stay healthy, mm-hmm. your metabolic rate might actually be on the low. It might be on the go slow because it's kind of trying to preserve energy. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens for quite a long time before people actually start to lose weight. Okay. Um, it's also another reason, like, you know, 
we talk about we've we've briefly spoken about it but you know when you're restoring particularly when you're restoring weight after an eating disorder mm-hmm. it's so important to to get to that point of regulation with your hormones before you can start to really trust your appetite yes mm-hmm. um, and I think that's a really important like there's loads of evidence that have shown that for example and again you're you know you're the expert on the brain but there's loads of stuff that's shown that you know your brain the structure of the brain and, and the changes in the brain that occur when somebody has been mm-hmm. um, starving they can't change back if they're going to until menstruation or testosterone levels have have come come back to normal mm-hmm. so it does show that there's a lot of it's, there's a lot of hormones involved there's a lot of kind of fine-tuned processes within the body um, and when we fight that that's when the problems occur and this is the thing isn't it that we we so underestimate the body mm. when it comes to things like body shape or uh, fat loss and trying to like achieve a particular aesthetic we so underestimate how the body will respond and how the body will try to protect itself from what it feels is some sort of risk or environmental uh, lack and 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 that we end up so so often fighting ourselves and fighting our bodies and I think one of the things I always try to get across is the idea that your your body doesn't it doesn't want to be unhealthy. It doesn't want to be on either end of the spectrum, you know, very, very underweight or, or very, very metabolically unhealthy in the other direction. It wants to be in this place of homeostasis. It wants to be, you know, it wants to have enough energy to move. It wants to move enough. It doesn't want to feel hungry all the time. And, and your body wants to be in a state of peace. Mm. And what we end up doing so often you know, for lots of different reasons, psychological, environmental, social, cultural, is fighting that. And, and it's really about trying to shift the belief that your body is an enemy, mm. your body is something that needs to be subdued, that your body is a rebel that needs to be, you know, cut down and put back in place. And, and in fact, to try to get away from that separation about me versus my body and understanding that you are your body mm, I love that I think that's so perfectly put so beautifully put and and I think that's it we you know it's it's that isn't that when you're at one mm. with it's like we talk about being at one with nature but it's actually being at one with yourself and I think if it's a really hard place to get to but when you're there it's when everything feels and works right for you and mm. it is a possibility everybody can get there but you've got to stop fighting yourself mm. and I think one of the things that can can lead into that is is that external you know the use of external resources Mm -hmm. to make decisions you know like especially around food and training and Mm -hmm. again we talked about it earlier with the social media you know Mm -hmm. you see all these people doing all these things and you start to believe that that's what you need to do to be healthy but actually it might not be relevant to your body and I think that's the one message I always try and get across to people is that even with the national guidelines that we have and you know, and all the um, all the theory that we have, all the scientific theory about food. Mm-hmm. The problem is, we are all unique. Mm-hmm. You know, I was saying to you when I was away this last weekend in um, Albi at the twenty four hour championships. You know, there were eleven athletes out there um, running for twenty four hours, and they would all come into the tent at intermittent times, and they'd tell you what's going on for them, and then you're trying to work out what's happening to them at a kind of biochemical, um, hormonal, physiological level. And they're all different. Mm. Like for some of them, it was a salt issue. For some of them, it was a sugar issue. For some of them, they needed real food. For some, they needed they needed fluid. And 
I couldn't use a one size fits all approach to just that's 11 people. It's, you know, so if you start to think that oh, we should all be following these guidelines, mm. it, it doesn't always fit. You have to be, you have to kind of work out be what works for you. Be yeah. responsive to yourself. Yeah, definitely. And, and fundamentally, I think that comes down to self-respect and self-trust. Yeah, definitely. Rini, as ever, it has been a tour de force through all of your areas of expertise. Um, I'm so grateful for your time. I will try and get this out to people as soon as possible. And I will add all of the links so that anybody who hasn't found you yet, I don't understand why they wouldn't have, <laughs> can find you. So thank you so, so, so much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I've loved having you in my kitchen. <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.